1: Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of everything, everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. So here's this 13-year-old kid being made emperor by the same soldiers who'd murdered his predecessors. He must have been pissing himself. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Last week, we took a look at two child emperors in Roman history, Elagopolis and Caracalla, who turned out to be very different kinds of
0: tyrant. Today, we'll take a look at the other side of the coin, weaker child emperors at the mercy of older and wilier regents and family members. And we'll start with Severus Alexander, who was emperor at 13 and dead by 26, we talked about him a little bit in the last episode because he was the cousin of Elagabalus. And we're just going to call him Alexander from now on because Severus Alexander kind of takes a long time to say. Like I said, he was the cousin who replaced Elagabalus. His rule was mostly dominated by other people, most notably his mother, Mamia and his grandmother, Maesa. He ruled for 13 years. And compared to the other two who came before him, Alexander was also a pretty good emperor and a decent guy. In
1: 222 AD, after the death of Elagopolis, Meisa and Mamiya set about cleaning up the place, getting rid of slaves, actors, and charioteers that Elagopolis had promoted to positions of power, and appointing an advisory council for Alexander. This council consisted of 16 respected men, and Alexander was allowed to do nothing without their approval.
0: Meisa died, and Mamiya began managing things alone. By then, Alexander was 15, Concerned that he might get sucked into Elagabalus' kind of lifestyle, Mimia made sure Alexander was always under close guard and his time always occupied with state matters. As he grew up, Alexander demonstrated a very chill temperament and actually seemed to care about human life. What a breath of fresh air.
1: I know, after Caracalla and Elagabalus, it's like, wow, this is this is kind of good.
0: It's kind of sweet. So, the historian Herodian reports that he entered the 4th year of his reign without bloodshed and no one could say that the emperor had been responsible for anyone's murder. I mean, at this point the bar is low. <laughs> <laughs> Even though men were convicted of serious crimes, he nonetheless granted them pardons to avoid putting them to death. Indeed, over a period of many years, no one could recall that any man had been condemned to death by Alexander without a trial. I mean, isn't that sweet?
1: It's a regular Valentine's Day card, isn't it?
0: I know. It's it's just, I, I want to hug him. You didn't kill anybody. Good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that might be a problem though, Jenny. <laughs>
0: Right. So it turned out that it wasn't Alexander so much as his mother that you had to worry about. Mimia loved money and would frequently confiscate people's property to amass more wealth for herself. Alexander objected, but was unsuccessful in stopping her. Mimia married Alexander at the age of 16 to Seleustia Orbiana a young girl from a good family. Alexander cared for his wife and treated her well, which yet another breath of fresh air. I
1: feel like he's kind of the Tommen in his story from Game of Thrones. He
0: is. He is the Tommen. No, and he just wants a cat called Sir Pounce. Oh, that's adorable. So anyway, he's actually nice to his wife, but Mimia was so jealous of this girl's new rank as co empress that she executed the girl's father and exiled her to Libya. Alexander wasn't pleased about this, but he never went against his mother.
1: So as, as you might have guessed, Alexander's reign was relatively peaceful, although the military never really took him seriously. In 223, a year after he took office, the Praetorians murdered their prefect in front of the emperor, ignoring him when he begged them to stop. Then they sacked the city of Rome for three days, setting some of it on fire. Historians believe that Alexander's weakness and dependence on his mother eroded the military respect for him. The ancient Romans were very suspicious of strong women.
0: All this came to a head when in 234, the Persian Empire threatened Rome. Alexander planned a strategy that involved leading part of his army into battle himself, but his mother persuaded him to allow others to fight and die for him, and he hesitated, letting the rest of his army go into battle without his reinforcements. Things ended with a stinging defeat, and the survivors were Furious with Alexander. Yeah, you
1: kind of can't blame them, can you? Right? So not long after, reports came in that the Germanic tribes were plundering the Roman province of Illyria, threatening the families of soldiers who had sacrificed much to follow Alexander to Persia. Instead of fighting, on his mother's advice, Alexander had offered to pay the Germans to go away, and this did not sit well with the army, because a truce didn't profit them at all. There was no possibility of plunder with a truce. They also saw Alexander as thoroughly under his mother's control, and they didn't decided it was time for a change in leadership.
0: The man they chose to usurp him was a drill sergeant named Maximinius Thrax. I love that name, Maximinius Thrax.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I want a dog and I want to name him Maximinius Thrax.
0: can it be a poodle? <laughs> Only if it's like a teacup poodle. It has to right? be super little. Can or- it be a teensy, teensy, little, little itty bitty dog named Maximinius Thrax? Because that's amazing. <laughs> or like a, maybe,
1: a, maybe a dachshund?
0: Yeah. Or like a really tiny pit bull. <laughs> or a pug? Yeah. Like a pug. Like one of those little, like, it looks like it should be fierce, but it's teensy. <laughs> that's Maximinius Thrax. And he, <laughs> just as I keep mentioning this name, please think of a teensy little pug. Or a teacup poodle, or a Pomeranian, or a take your favorite pick of tiny dog. Teensy dog of your choice. He was basically the polar opposite of Alexander, a manly man who the Astoria Augusta claims in a fit of hyperbole to be over eight feet tall. Most of Alexander's troops defected to Maximinus's side because he was so cute! Look at him! <laughs> and Alexander was cut down in his own camp along with his mother. The historian Herodian says of his death, a stranger to savagery, murder, and illegality. He was noted for his benevolence and good deeds. It is therefore entirely possible that the reign of Alexander might have won renown for its perfection had not his mother's petty avarice brought disgrace upon him.
1: And can I just go back to our list of the damnato memoriae and let me just say, poor Severus Alexander was on this list, but only while Maximinius Thrax was in charge.
0: And that's incredible.
1: Yeah. And then after Maximinius Thrax's death, he joins the list. You
0: mean he he was reinstated as someone that you're allowed to mention in public?
1: Oh, sorry. I meant to say, I I believe that happened with uh, Severus Alexander. But after Maximinius Thrax's death, he also becomes a member of our Domnato Memorialist.
0: So Maximinius Thrax becomes Domnato. Yes, he does. I mean, I think it's amazing that that happens to poor little Alexander, because he's the only nice one so far. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's
1: top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
0: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
0: The next emperor we're going to talk about is Gordian Third, who was emperor at 13 and dead by 18. Gordian Third came to power at a very turbulent time. And to tell his story, we have to backtrack a little bit and talk more about Maximinius Thrax, the eight-foot giant slash teensy little poodle who <laughs> replaced Alexander. Maximinius Thrax came to power in 235 after Alexander's murder. But he didn't last more than three years. One reason was his massive inferiority complex. Thrax was a shepherd before he joined the Roman army. He just could not believe that other people, especially the Senate, would accept him as emperor with this humble background. After taking power, he put most of Alexander's former attendants to death, believing they were plotting against him. He also arrested a large chunk of his own army and put them to death.
1: Thrax ushered in a reign of tyranny, welcoming informers who accused many people, renowned military leaders, respected consuls, and even governors of unfounded, trivial charges, often on personal vendettas. For Thrax, accusation was as good as proof. Most of the accused he had tortured and put to death without trial. Soon, even the military was pissed off with him.
0: Three years after his rise, a province in Africa mutinied and raised two people as usurper emperors, the father-son team, Gordians 1 and 2. Gordian I was the local governor. He had immense experience in all aspects of government, but he was more than 80 years old, and he also really did not want to be emperor. The soldiers who elevated him had to do it at sword point, threatening him with death if he did not accept the honor. Apparently, Gordian I had lived long enough to know better. Because of his age, his son, Gordian II, who reputedly had a library of 62,000 volumes and a harem of 22 concubines, was nominated to co rule. However, the well-read and oversexed Gordian II was killed in battle with Thrax's allies a month after rebelling, and Gordian I hung himself in despair.
1: And meanwhile... Maximinius Thrax was spending the winter in Pannonia, modern-day Eastern Europe. The Roman Senate, who had cast their lot in with the Gordians, faced the prospect of Thrax getting wind of their misbehavior real soon and sweeping in with an avenging army. First, they elevated two of their own to emperor status, Balbinus and Pupianus.
0: I can't, I can't say it! So Pupienus. <laughs> it's just (laughs) we're i mean all i'm gonna say is that number one we may be pronouncing this wrong and if there are any latin scholars who would like to tell us how to properly and non-scandalously pronounce poopy enus please tell us and number two we are 12 year old boys at heart or 12 year old girls or 12 year old girls right okay so the news
1: (laughs) okay the elevation of Balbinus and Pupienus was not received well by the people. Facing down a threatening mob, armed with clubs and stones, the Senate seized the grandson of Gordian I, 13-year-old Gordian III, and held him up as Caesar.
0: A civil war engulfed the city with citizens, including a mob of gladiators, attacking the Castra Praetoria, the barracks of the Praetorian Guard. This was a bad idea. Do not attack the Praetorian Guard. The only Praetorians in the barracks at the time was a skeleton crew of older veterans. The rest of the Praetorians were with Maximinius Thrax, fighting in Germania. But they gave back as good as they got. Parts of the city burned. Meanwhile, Thrax led his own army over the Alps along with the rest of the Praetorian Guard. And to get to Rome, he had to get past the town of Aquileia. And Aquileia refused to play ball. And wait,
1: wait wait Jenny are you talking about was there a siege there was a
0: siege would
1: you like me to tell you all about it I really really want to know about this especially after our two-parter
0: sieges as soon as you' were doing the research I was like oh my god was there a siege tell me more well strap in because I'm gonna tell you all about this siege and this is such an interesting siege there are a lot of things about it that make it very different from the sieges that we talked about in our first two episodes so Aquileia shut his doors against Thrax's army and just refused to let it pass a siege in- sued, and this one was brutal. Not on the defenders, but the attackers. I mean, honestly, in the account, it sounds like the defenders are having a great time. The people of Aquileia enthusiastically defended their town. Men, women, and children, plus the old people. And Herodian gives us a really great description. The Aquileans hurled down stones on the besiegers, combining pitch and olive oil with asphalt and brimstone. They ignited this mixture and poured it over their attackers from hollow vessels fitted with long handles. Bringing the flaming liquid to the walls, they scattered it over the soldiers like a heavy downpour of rain. Carried along with the other ingredients, the pitch oozed onto the unprotected parts of the soldiers' bodies and spread everywhere. Then the soldiers ripped off their blazing corslets and the rest of their armor too, for the iron grew red hot and the leather and wooden parts caught fire and burned. As a result, soldiers were seen everywhere stripping themselves. Most of the soldiers suffered scarred and disfigured faces and lost eyes and hands, while every unprotected part of the body was severely injured. The aquileans hurled down torches on the siege engines which had been dragged up to the walls. These torches, sharpened at the end like a javelin, were soaked in pitch and resin and then ignited. The firebrands still blazing stuck fast in the machines, which easily caught fire and were consumed by the flames. The army of Maximinius grew depressed. I love that line. (laughs) (laughs) This was very depressing. Cheated in its expectations, it fell into despair when the soldiers found that those whom they had not expected to hold out against a single assault were not only offering stout resistance, but were even beating them back. The Aquileans, on the other hand, were greatly encouraged and highly enthusiastic. And like I said before, they were just having a ball. (laughs) As the battle continued, their skill and daring increased contemptuous of the soldiers now, they hurled taunts at them. As Maximinius wrote about, they shouted insults and indecent blasphemies at him and his son. I mean, I could just imagine how much fun these people are having raining hell and brimstone down on these soldiers and also brutally making fun of them.
1: It so reminds me of that Monty Python scene with the French taunter (laughs) at the castle.
0: I totally agree with you. That's exactly what I thought about. Right, so I'm going to put a link in the show notes of the um, French defense in Monty Python and the Holy Grail because this is exactly what I'm thinking of when I'm reading about this. Maximinius, the teensy little, very fierce teacup poodle, became increasingly angry because he was powerless to retaliate. Unable to vent his wrath upon the enemy, he was enraged at most of his troop commanders because they were pressing the siege in cowardly and half-hearted fashion. Consequently, the hatred of his supporters increased and his enemies grew more contemptuous of him each day. So there are a few things here to take note of if you listen to How to Survive a Siege. The defenders were civilians as well as soldiers, so the lines between combatant and non-combatant were blurred. And they were also really good at using psychological warfare to get under the attacker's skin. The teasing really bothered Thrax and his people. Apparently, they really pushed some buttons there. (laughs) Plus, the defenders spread a rumor that armies were convening to fight against Thrax. Also, usually it's the defenders who have to struggle with things like unsanitary conditions, corpses in the streets, and a lack of food and drinking water. But that was actually not the case in this fight. And Herodian tells us, As it happened, the Aquilaeans had everything they needed in abundant quantities. With great foresight, they had stored in the city all the food and drink required for men and animals. Which, I mean, when does anyone plan that far ahead, right? I wonder what time of year this was. Like, if it
1: was winter, they might actually already be prepared.
0: You know, I actually don't know what time of year it was, but that's a really great question. Anyway, they had all, they had everything they needed. They had all the food and drink. The soldiers of the emperor, by contrast, lacked every necessity since they had cut down the fruit trees and devastated the countryside. Some of the soldiers had built temporary huts, but the majority were living in the open air, exposed to sun and rain. And now many died of starvation. No food was brought in from the outside, as the Romans had blocked all the roads of Italy by erecting walls provided with narrow gates. The country of Rome was fighting Against Thrax as he was fighting against Aquileia. The Senate had dispatched former consuls and picked men from all Italy to guard the beaches and harbors and prevent anyone from sailing. Their intent was to keep Maximinius in ignorance of what was happening at Rome. Thus, the main roads and all the bypaths were closely watched to prevent anyone's passing. The result was that the army, which appeared to be maintaining the siege, was itself under siege. And that's another really interesting thing about this that makes the siege unusual. The only source of water was the nearby river, which was fouled by blood and bodies. Lacking any means of burying those who died in the city, the Aquilans threw the bodies into the river. Both those who fell in the fighting and those who died of disease were dropped into the stream as the city had no facilities for burial, which is a really common thing in sieges. And so the completely confused army was in the depths of despair. They were really depressed. And another thing that complicated this was that Thrax's soldiers weren't fighting an enemy people. They were actually fighting their own citizens. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people in Thrax's army had friends and family members in Aquileia. Thrax's Praetorian guard conspired to kill him. And once again, Herodian gives us the straight dope. The conspirators went to Maximinius's tent about noon. The Imperial bodyguard, which was involved in the plot, ripped Maximinius's pictures from the standards. When he came out of his tent with his son to talk to them, they refused to listen and killed them both. They killed the army's commanding general also and the emperor's close friends. Their bodies were handed over to those who wished to trample and mutilate them, after which the corpses were exposed to the birds and dogs. The hands of Maximinius and his son were sent to Rome. Such was the fate suffered by Maximinius and his son who paid the penalty for their savage rule. So Gordian III was now emperor along with his co-emperors Balbinus and Pupienus. But
1: the Praetorians didn't like Balbinus and Pupienus, and neither did the people.
0: I wouldn't want my emperor to be named Poopy Enus either.
1: So, while the Capitoline games were going on, a mob of assassins stormed the palace, stripped the two co-emperors naked, and dragged them through the streets. Gibbon tells us their bodies, mangled with a thousand wounds, were left exposed to the insults or to the pity of the populace. Then, the soldiers fetched poor little Gordian III, brought him to their camp, and proclaimed him emperor. So, here's this 13-year-old kid being made emperor by the same soldiers who'd murdered his predecessors. He must have been pissing himself. Gordon Third's reign was mostly controlled by other people. Gibbon describes a somewhat menacing group of eunuchs who initially descend on the young emperor. Pernicious vermin of the East, who, since the days of Elegopolis, had infested the Roman palace. By artful conspiracy of these wretches, an impenetrable veil was drawn between an innocent prince and his opposed subjects. The honors of the empire sold without his knowledge, though in a very public manner, to the most worthless of mankind.
0: Gordian married the daughter of his praetorian prefect, Timosithius, and Timosithius took over and cleaned house. The Historia Augusta records a letter from Timosithius to Gordian. Truly, it delights me to be the father-in-law of a worthy emperor and of one, too, who inquires into everything and wishes to know everything and has driven away the men who formerly sold him as though he were set up in open market. And Gordian's reply, were it not that the mighty gods watch over the Roman Empire, even now we should be sold by bought eunuchs as though under the hammer.
1: Gordian trusted his father-in-law, Timosithius, looking at him like a surrogate dad. And for a number of years, Timosithius was the para behind the throne. But Timosithius died in 243, and he left the young emperor who is currently fighting in Persia in the lurch.
0: How Timosythius died is a bit hazy. One account suggests he was murdered by Philip the Arab, who became prefect after him. According to the story, Timosythius was suffering from a bad bout of diarrhea, and Philip the Arab had his medicine doctored to make his symptoms worse, not better. Some historians dispute this, but Philip the Arab clearly benefited from Timosythius' death.
1: Can I just say, Philip the Arab makes our list of the Donata Moriae.
0: Oh, really? Everybody (laughs) in this episode is a damned emperor. Not... Gordian the Third. He was pretty inoffensive, I guess.
1: So Philip the Arab took on the dead man's role as the praetorian prefect and surrogate father figure to Gordian Third. except this time he did not have the young emperor's best interest at heart. One account suggests that Philip deliberately starved the army of supplies during Gordian's campaign in Persia and spread rumors about the boy's incompetence. Until the army was so exasperated, it demanded Philip be raised to co-emperor with senior authority over Gordian.
0: And what happened next is a little bit unclear. According to the Historia Augusta, Philip the Arab edged Gordian out. Gordian grasped blindly at his old position, first complaining to the officers and soldiers in the hope that they'd get mad on his behalf and strip Philip of his position. This didn't work, so apparently Gordian got his officers to vote on which one of them they preferred, and Philip won.
1: Wow. It's cold. I mean... That's really cold. It really shocks me that Philip goes from being voted in as emperor to then be one of the damnata memoriae.
0: Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me here based on his treatment of Gordian. And it also shows what can happen to a child emperor, because Gordian really depended on his father figures. And he kind of thought Philip initially was going to be another Timosithius, and that is not how this worked.
1: Gordian saw he was defeated, and then he started lobbying for other power arrangements. He was literally fighting for his life at this point. The alternative to finding a Philip-approved position in the empire was death. Philip could not allow a possible rival emperor to live.
0: At first, Gordian asked for their power to be made equal, then that he be made junior emperor, and then that he be made praetorian prefect, Philip's old job, and finally, when none of that worked, he asked to be made only an ordinary general. He was denied all positions. Philip had him carried, shouting protests out of their sight, and then despoiled and slain.
1: This account is a bit confused. Contemporary Persian sources suggest he died in battle in northern Mesopotamia. However, Roman sources don't mention this battle. What actually happened is a mystery. Gordian, like the child emperors before him, did not live long. He was dead by 18.
0: Our final child emperor is Honorius, who was emperor at 10 and dead by 38. Honorius lasted a lot longer than the others, which is different. He was born in 384 AD, 140 years after the death of Gordian III. He was the emperor during the infamous sack of Rome by Alaric of the Visigoths,
1: aka Jenny Williamson's boyfriend.
0: (laughs) Yes, so I'm so psyched I get to talk about Alaric in this next section. Honorius was the son of Theodosius the Great, a prominent figure in early Christianity. His father convened the Council of Nicaea, a gathering of church leaders who confirmed the official Christian doctrine that Jesus, the son, was equal to and not subservient to God the Father. He also made Nicene Christianity the state religion of Rome and disbanded the Vestal Virgins.
1: Theodosius the Great had two sons, Arcadius and Honorius. So by this time, the Roman Empire had grown so huge that it had been divided into East and West and was governed by two separate emperors. When Theodosius died, he left Arcadius, 18 years old at the time, in charge of the Eastern Empire, later known as the Byzantine Empire, and he made Honorius, aged only 10, emperor over the West. He appointed guardians for the boys, for Arcadius the praetorian prefect Rufinus, and for Honorius the general Stilicho.
0: So from the start, both boys were completely under the control of their dueling guardians. Stilicho and Rufinus were bitter rivals, always working to undermine each other. Stilicho kept insisting that Theodosius had actually made him guardian of both boys on his deathbed, not just Honorius. Rufinus disagreed with this, obviously. He prevented Stilicho from defeating Alaric on one of his invasions into Eastern territory, preferring to allow a gang of marauding Goths to ravage his territory than to let Stilicho share the credit for kicking them out. Ultimately, Stilicho sent soldiers to Constantinople ostensibly to help protect the city. Instead, they cut Rufinus to pieces outside his own city gate. But
1: back to Honorius, he inherited an empire in turmoil. At this point, the capital of the Roman Empire was in Milan, which is considerably north of Rome. The empire had grown too big and too unwieldy to manage from so far down on the Italian peninsula. Six years into his reign, Honorius would have been about 16. Alaric of the Goths, who would later sack Rome, laid siege to Milan.
0: Honorius fled to Ravenna, a city in the middle of a swamp, which again, reminds me of Monty Python. I'm just going to put so many Monty Python notes in the show notes.
1: I know what scene you mean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's in the middle of a swamp, unreachable to the barbarian hordes who kept sweeping over the mountains to lay waste to northern Italy, but not in a good position from which to defend the empire. He was basically leaving his own subjects to fend for themselves. And there were severe consequences to this. According to Procopius, a writer who lived about 100 years after the events he's writing about, the barbarians, finding that they had no hostile force to encounter them became the most cruel of all men for they destroyed all the cities which they captured so completely that nothing had been left in my time to know them by, unless indeed it might be one tower or one gate or some such thing which chanced to remain. And they killed all the people, as many as came in their way, both old and young alike, sparing neither women nor children. Wherefore, even up to the present time, Italy is sparsely populated. So that was the handiwork of Alaric of the Goths.
1: So for the next seven years or so, Stilicho was left to marshal the Roman defenses and plot against his rivals while Honorius hid in his swamp and raised his prized cockerels. Throughout his reign, he was looked upon as a weak emperor with bad judgment buffeted about between stronger advisors and hangers-on. When Honorius was 23, Stilicho decided to enforce his claim on the Eastern Empire and unite Rome's greatest enemy to do it. This was, of course, Alaric, who'd spent a lot of time sacking and ravaging in the Baltic, Greece, and northern Italy at this point. The alliance didn't work out, But Alaric demanded 4,000 pounds of gold, enough to feed 100,000 followers for a year, for what he called mobilization expenses. Stilicho strong-armed the Senate into paying up to prevent another Gothic invasion.
0: So interestingly enough, Alaric set a precedent by doing this. If it wasn't the first time an enemy of Rome asked for protection money to go away, I think it was at least one of the first times. Other enemies of Rome watched and learned. Generations later, Attila the Hun would demand 6,000 pounds of gold, and the Persians got about 12,600 to leave the empire alone. Needless to say, though, the bribery did not sit well with the Senate. One of Stilicho's rivals at court, the chancellor and eunuch Olympius, persuaded Honorius that Stilicho was plotting treason. Stilicho was Rome's best defense against the Goths and the Gauls who threatened its borders. He'd twice held off Alaric's invasions and was the only reason Rome was not a complete tire fire at this point. Even so, Honorius allowed himself to be persuaded and ordered Stilicho's execution along with his whole family.
1: A lot of historians theorize that Alaric didn't actually want to sack Rome while laying siege to the city. He made a lot of demands of Honorius, each of which the emperor refused. His demands got easier and easier, finally culminating in just asking for some land in a politically unimportant place and, you know, maybe some food now and then. Honorius would have had to be dumb to say no to this. Here's the fearsome barbarian general he's been hiding from in his swamp for years, telling him that he'll go away for practically nothing, and Honorius refuses.
0: The image of Nero fiddling while Rome burned is surpassed in my eyes by that of the empire being ravaged by vast hordes of gothic invaders while Honorius played with his cockerels. When one of his eunuchs told him that Rome had perished because Alaric had sacked it, Honorius explained, "'And yet it has just eaten from my hands.'" he thought the eunuch met his favorite cockerel, who he'd named Rome, after the city. At this point, Honorius would have been about 26 years old.
1: Honorius was also the emperor who abandoned Roman Britain. By now, Britain had been part of the empire for almost four centuries. In the space of four years leading up to the sack of Rome, however, it was rocked by revolt. Faced with a giant invasion of Gothic tribes and later Alaric on Rome's doorstep, Honorius called back the Roman troops stationed in Britain, refusing his citizens' pleas for aid against the tribes of Alans and Vandals and others threatening their borders. Archaeologists are still unearthing containers of Queens that wealthy Roman families buried when they fled their homes, hoping they would someday return.
0: Throughout Honorius's reign, the empire faced regular usurpers, mainly due to his weak leadership. Stilicho managed to keep these in check, but when he died, things got worse, and Britain was only the beginning. By the end of his time as emperor, Honorius had also lost control of most of Gaul. However, he did manage to live until the age of 38, which was rare for child emperors, at least in Rome. He died in the year 423 AD, outliving the sack of Rome by 13 years, and he died of edema, some kind of swelling in the interstitial muscles. Sounds very painful. And he managed not to get killed by his own military, which again, for a child emperor, that's overachieving.
1: So there's a fun fact here about Honorius. In 397, he would have been 13 at this point. He banned the wearing of trousers in the city of Rome. Trousers at that time were strongly associated with barbarians, which to the Romans was basically anyone foreign, including the Goths and the Gauls. The law states that anyone found wearing boots or trousers would be stripped of everything he owned and sent into exile forever.
0: The problem with being a child emperor is that it was very difficult to make the transition into adulthood. The strong ones seem prone to becoming tyrants. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and hooking the unformed brain of a child up to that level of power strikes me as the perfect way to create a monster.
1: Child emperors were also vulnerable to those who would take advantage. Regents who set themselves up as parental figures, sometimes the parents of the children themselves, who use them as a conduit to power. The weaker child emperors had trouble getting out from under the thumbs of their regents, who often wound up getting them killed. Now, there were plenty of adult emperors who were megalomaniacs and tyrants, I mean Caligula and Nero come to mind, as well as adult emperors who were weak and controlled by others. But children have the deck stacked against them to become one or the other.
0: One thing's for sure, this is one of my pearls of wisdom that I plan to impart to my niece and nephews. If a violent army kidnaps you, brings you to their camp, and declares you an emperor, go along with them. You know, smile, nod, do not make the armed men mad, but don't be fooled. This is not as good of a deal as it seems. When night falls, run. They slaughtered your predecessors, and it's only a matter of time before they turn on you. That concludes the second part of our Child Emperors
1: of Rome series. I think you've got some useful knowledge. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Ancient Hist fan and Instagram and Facebook under Ancient History Fangirl. And make sure you check out ancienthistoryfangirl.com for our show notes, images, and all good things
0: links to random Monty Python sketches, which are definitely going in there. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever else you might get your podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you can, feel free to leave us a rating. It really helps. Thanks, and we'll see you in two weeks.
1: Wait, guys, before you go, we thought we'd let you guys know about some things you can do to help us keep the podcast going.
0: Right. So we totally run on caffeine. To keep bringing you these stories, we've got to stay caffeinated. Tea and lattes are not cheap. But you can help us out by going to our website, finding the button in the lower left corner and clicking buy us a latte.
1: We appreciate every little bit of help we get. And while we're at it, don't forget to rate our podcast. Your feedback helps us get seen and helps new people come to the podcast. And if you like us, tell a friend, tell two friends.
0: Tell everyone you know. Thanks again. We really appreciate it.